So, Annabelle, do you believe the sun will come up tomorrow? I mean, of, of course I believe the sun will come up tomorrow. But, uh, to be honest, it's not something I even would ever think about. But why? I mean, because a physicist has told you it will or because it always has before? Yeah, because it, it comes up every day. And what could I do to make you change your mind? To make you change your belief in the sun? I don't think there's anything you could do. I, I'm sold. I'd bet you a million dollars that the sun will come up tomorrow. So you just assume it will? Yeah. So you're taking it on blind faith that the sun will come up tomorrow? I've got faith. So Annabelle is happy to take the continued existence of the sun on blind faith. It is, after all, a relatively uncontroversial belief. But not all our assumptions are as obvious. Welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation, with me, Will Freitas. And me, Annabelle Bly. In this episode of The Ant Hill, we're taking a critical look at the idea of belief. We've got four stories for you. How belief has shaped scientific discovery, how it's shaken by trauma, and even how our beliefs can be nudged in a different direction by a big, loud magnet. But first, I'm going to take a look at some more left-field ideas. It's 2016, the year the world suddenly went mad. We've had the Brexit fallout, tiny Toblerone, Donald Trump, Syria, a massive migrant crisis, an Arctic heatwave, and Bowie, Prince and Cohen all dead. But if you feel this depressed about a new government or the death of yet another rock star, imagine how you'd feel if you actually thought a serving president had ordered 9-11 or that the world was about to end imminently. Welcome to the world of conspiracy theories and cults. Given the momentous upheaval this year, I wanted to learn more about people who already rejected many commonly accepted beliefs and why. I started with Linda Dubrow-Marshall and her husband Rod. They're both psychologists at the University of Salford and experts in cults. I asked them why anyone would join a cult. Well, the appeal of cults is uh, quite broad and different people are attracted to it for different reasons, but it tends to be that you're attracted to it because it um, fulfills a purpose, gives you a sense of mission and importance and belonging. So there are quite a few emotional reasons why people are attracted to cults. And uh, often it happens when you're in some kind of period of searching yourself, like you're going through a transition or there's stress or you're a little more open to considering a new way of life or new ideas. Of course, none of this happens overnight. Cults usually go for a a sell around world peace or self-improvement, something that's going to fulfill your dream. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to survive or evacuate is to leave with us. One of the telltale signs is that cults don't usually tell you their entire belief system to start with. So they'll say, you know, are you interested in coming to a meeting to discuss peace in the world and trying to avoid war? It could be something generic like that. And that's actually one of the um, taglines that the Unification Church, or what used to be called the Moonies, used to use. They used to have meetings for world peace that people used to go along to, and they then would find later, actually, that this was a 
Unification Church meeting. So the tagline can be fairly benign, it can be something that most people would be interested in, and gradually you get drawn into the wider belief system. I wondered whether cults hide those beliefs because they know deep down that they don't actually have the solution to world peace. Or is this a conscious recruitment strategy? It is strategic because they know that you wouldn't sign up to do the things that they're going to ask of you in the end as you get more and more involved. So if you have a free weekend training or very inexpensive, you'll agree to that. And then when you're there, if they hook you and the people are there and they're so enthusiastic about it and they're love bombing you and telling you how great you are and don't you want to come back for more, I know the next weekend it's a lot more, but, you know, maybe you could borrow the money or maybe your family would come too and they would help pay for it. And, you know, they gradually get you to do things that basically are outrageous and you would never agree to it in the first place. These are true believers. People in cults really believe um, the belief system of the group. It takes them over in the end uh, completely. Um, It's why um, the term brainwashing was invented, to talk about that state that people get into where those beliefs take them over um, completely and they don't believe in anything else afterwards. And more than actually believing it, they'll want to believe it with their heart and soul. And it reminds me actually of that slogan, from the X-Files, I want to believe. Well, you kind of multiply that by a thousand for cult members. They really, really want to believe because they really believe that their life depends on it. In fact, cults can trigger one of the strongest emotions of all. It's a bit like falling in love or falling head over heels in love. Um, people get infatuated with the ideas of the group and with the group leader, and it kind of takes them over, and they start to drop their other interests, their other friends, sometimes their families as well. And that shows you when the person's getting in uh, really deep. At this point, the overall aims or mission of the group becomes clear. Yet, as Rod describes it, you never quite learn everything, so you always keep coming back for more. Of course, that's the basic notion of addiction, the idea that you want more of something to try and get to an ultimate nirvana, which you actually never get to. I wondered whether something similar was going on with conspiracy theorists. Might people who dispute the moon landings happened or think 9-11 was an inside job simply be addicted to simple solutions in a complex world? It's a question I put to conspiracy theory expert Steve Lewandowski, Chair in Cognitive Psychology at the University of Bristol. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the uh, difficulties with conspiracy theories that, you know, they're, they're psychologically very attractive to people because it, it turns out to be much easier for people to accept uh, that there are some evil, nefarious individuals out there who are controlling their lives, you know, these, these MI5 or the FBI or whatever it is. That's much easier to accept, paradoxically, for many people than randomness. I mean, who wants to believe that a drunk driver you know, is going to kill Princess Diana, some random, tragic, accidental, banal event, right? Now, that's very difficult to accept uh, for some people. It's much easier to say, oh, my God, you know, there were evil people at work. Um, And there is some literature on this that tells us that people actually find it comforting to have an enemy, bizarrely. It is a psychologically, it, it gives people comfort to have an identifiable person 
or a group of people whom they can blame for something that they find threatening. For Steve, conspiracy theories are a way of thinking. The defining feature of a conspiracy theory is the way in which people who are believing that theory are considering evidence and how they're updating their beliefs and basically how they think about the world and in particular this this theory. In all cases, one of the attributes that you find is what we call self-sealing thought. So what that means is that any evidence that runs counter to the conspiracy theory is just reframed as being part of the conspiracy. One major attribute of conspiratorial thought is that, that it is paranoia about the official account combined paradoxically with this incredible gullibility. You know, I mean, uh, the same with so-called climate skeptics. They're not actually skeptical at all. They're gullible. Because, you know, I mean, you have to be pretty gullible to believe that the entire scientific community is making up this hoax. Of course, Princess Diana wasn't really killed by the MI5. 9-11 wasn't an inside job. But sometimes these theories do turn out to be essentially correct. After Snowden, the Iraq war, phone hacking scandals and so on, isn't a bit of paranoia towards the powers that be entirely warranted? I asked Steve how conspiracy theorists differ from regular sceptics or investigative journalists. To my knowledge, there has been no actual conspiracy ever uncovered by a conspiracy theorist. You know, people who investigate real conspiracies usually don't show that, you know, simultaneous acceptance of absurdities combined with complete paranoia about anything official. So like Woodward and Bernstein, who the journalists who uncovered Watergate in the 1970s, I mean, they, you know, they, they were not paranoid and they were not gullible. They, they were investigative journalists getting to the bottom of something, being driven by the evidence. And, and that is completely different cognition from, from what is exhibited by, um, uh, you know, for example, so-called climate skeptics. Steve has long studied the psychology behind climate denial and its link to conspiratorial thinking. Indeed, after one of his academic papers on the topic spawned further conspiracy theories with himself at the centre, he then used those conspiracies as the basis for more research into conspiracy theories. Steve often highlights the basic incoherence of climate change sceptics. On the one hand, they argue that it's impossible to measure global temperatures, but at the same time, many say the world is experiencing global cooling. Which is it? He says that this sort of incoherence is common in the world of conspiracy theories and science denial. But it's only incoherent at the level of rational argument. It is entirely consistent and coherent at a much higher level of political intent. And if the political intent is to undermine the science and to delay mitigation of climate change, then it doesn't matter what arguments you're throwing at it, so long as you are coherently rejecting everything that the scientists are telling you. Incoherent arguments that somehow add up to a coherent political strategy? Does that sound familiar? I caught up with Steve again after the US election result. He'd previously described Donald Trump as a classic conspiracy theorist, and it's not hard to see why. His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya and she was there and witnessed the birth, okay? 
He doesn't have a birth certificate, or he hasn't shown it. He has what's called a certificate. Well, I think a lot of Mr. Trump's utterances are um, total conspiracy theories. I mean, this whole idea that climate change was created by the Chinese in order to, to harm American business, that's a classic uh, conspiracy theory, uh, of course, and, you know, totally disconnected from reality. Certainly Trump is more comfortable using such language than any president in a long time. I asked Steve how having such a powerful figure employing conspiratorial rhetoric might shift the boundaries of what is and isn't truth. By 2020, might climate scientists be the ones railing against an accepted truth of climate denial? It is well possible that within the next four years... In the public, the scientists will end up being the conspiracy theorists when it comes to global warming, and, and the public itself may, may think, oh, well, you know, that problem doesn't exist. That's entirely possible. We, we have a situation where very powerful people with a lot of pull in the media can create a, you know, artificial reality, uh, an artificial bubble of factoids that people can believe. And yes, we may face considerable difficulty. Of course, most Trump supporters don't subscribe to all his ideas, and many will be perfectly open to revising their views. But it's the hardcore that Steve worries about. Simply firing out facts about sea level rises or economic benefits of migration won't change views very effectively. So what does work? Here's Steve on how to talk to a conspiracy theorist. One of the things you can do is you can reaffirm the belief of that person in other arenas so that they don't feel challenged as a person. Once you make it very clear that you're valuing them as a person, you might throw in something about, you know, by the way, <laughs> actually, climate change isn't a hoax. I put the same question to Linda and Rod, our cult experts, who have both spent many years talking to current and former cult members. How do you talk someone out of believing a cult has all the answers? It's very important uh, for family members or friends of people who believe their loved one is in a cult not to criticise the group and not to uh, tell the person that they're stupid. It's equally important to learn as much as you can about the uh, beliefs of the group. Um, Complementalise, set aside your own scepticism or dislike of that belief system and be for that person, the unconditionally loving friend or family member, that ultimately the cult is not. Yes, so you want to be supportive rather than confrontative. And you shouldn't abandon them, even though you might feel like it, because they might say terrible things to you. It's also helpful to remind them of things that happen outside of the group that were really wonderful for them. You know, photos of great family memories and experiences and other positive personal achievements that the person might have had that they've walked away from. So while people join cults and believe conspiracy theories for various different and often intensely personal reasons, it seems those on the side of expertise or rationality do have some common tactics to call upon. If you need to talk to a friend or family member in a cult or someone who's caught up in a web of conspiracy theories, then stop sneering and start understanding why they believe what they do. (laughs) 
So, Will, are you ready to love bomb some conspiracy theorists? Well, I, I can start with one of my best mates who uh, believes in chemtrails, the idea that planes are leaving mind-controlled drugs as they fly through the air. So, yeah, I'll start by love bombing him. Nice. Well, good luck with that, Will. To flip things around now, we're going to look at the role that belief actually plays in creating the evidence in the first place. After all, scientific conclusions are meant to be based on evidence only. But are they? Our science editor Miriam Frankel took a look at whether the hallowed scientific method really is immune from dogma. In times of great political turmoil, it is easy to feel overwhelmed by the clash of vastly differing opinions, or worse, post-truth arguments and fake news stories driving the agenda. One thing we might ask ourselves is why politics can't learn from science, which is evidence-based and rational. But even science isn't immune from biases and assumptions. After all, how do scientists decide what to study and how to interpret the findings? Is it possible to make sure that our scientific theories are free from ingrained beliefs and dogmatic thinking? To find out, I spoke to David Papineau, a philosopher of science at King's College London, and Gina Rippon, chair of cognitive neuroimaging at Aston University. I started by asking David to what extent science has been influenced by religion, superstition and dogma in the past. There's lots of cases in history where scientists have been very influenced by non-scientific beliefs in the background, by religious beliefs or supernatural beliefs of, of various kinds. And maybe the most famous example is, is, is Newton and his, all his interests in alchemy and biblical numerology. He was kind of obsessed with the age of the earth and kind of pulled over the Bible to try and figure out the, the, the dating of everything. But it's not clear that his, his scientific work was influenced by his, his kind of non-standard supernatural beliefs. But Kepler might be a better example. He thought that the movement of the planets was displaying a kind of musical musical harmony. He uh, he thought that the the sun was a symbol of God the Father, and his heliocentric view and his his uh, laws of planetary motion were very much based on his supernatural beliefs. In the context of discovery, which is a matter of thinking up your ideas in the first place, thinking up theories, kind of, it doesn't matter where the ideas come from. If you're influenced by sun worship or uh, strange uh, mathematical superstitions, it doesn't matter. You've come up with an interesting theory. As long as in the context of justification, when we start deciding whether the theory is true or not, then what matters is the evidence and not the the background inspiration. So while religion and superstition have played a role, ultimately it is the evidence that is the deciding factor in science. Yet, according to David, this doesn't mean we can declare science free of dogma. It's not clear that it really is feasible to check all your assumptions against the evidence all the time. It's kind of inevitable that scientists will always be working within the context of a large set of background assumptions that they don't really evaluate but take for granted. I mean, this is, this is uh, 
a feature of science emphasized by Thomas Kuhn in the structure of scientific revolutions, his famous book, where he says that at any time, scientists in any field are working within a paradigm, by which he means a set of assumptions, basic idea of how to solve problems. So there's the paradigm of classical physics, or the affinity theory of chemistry, or the miasma theory of disease. But most scientists in, say, 1800 never stopped to ask whether Newton's theory was right. They just applied Newton's theory to all kinds of more specific problems. So it's inevitable that scientists are going to be influenced by background beliefs, not not beliefs from outside science, not necessarily supernatural beliefs, but beliefs they just grow up with in their scientific education. And Kuhn's idea is that that will go on for decades, even hundreds of years. They'll just carry on working within a set of assumptions until problems build up. They get more and more what Kuhn calls anomalies, and then suddenly they're Basic assumptions will be overthrown in the scientific revolution, and then there will be a new paradigm installed. According to David, these kinds of revolutions, such as the move from Newton's classical mechanics to Einstein's relativistic physics, aren't just a thing of the past. If one thinks about relatively recent science, one can think of of quite a lot of examples where, where some things become the orthodoxy on the basis of not very much evidence, but perhaps just powerful figures, perhaps aided by outside interests. I mean, the the recent controversy about causes of obesity is an interesting case. I mean, there's uh, been a widespread agreement among nutritionists for the last 30, 40 years that cause of obesity is consumption of fat, especially saturated fats, and... Uh, now there seems to be quite a lot of evidence that that's just wrong. All that happens if you don't eat fat is you eat more sugar and you get fat anyway. And some nutritionists are now saying it was all a terrible mistake and we should be advising people to eat fat instead. So what's it like being a scientist, trying to find the truth while wading through enormous amounts of data? Neuroscientist Gina Reppin believes her field has a problem with neurosexism, the practice of claiming that there are fixed differences between female and male brains, which can explain women's inferiority or unsuitability for certain roles. She says recent research, such as studies showing that our brains can actually be moulded by different experiences, indicate that sex differences exist more on a spectrum than as two binary categories. In fact, many of the things we think we know, such as men being better at spatial cognition than women, have been shown to be diminishing over time, even disappearing. And in certain cultures, the situation is actually reversed. But how does this kind of sexism manifest itself in research? It affects all levels of research, really, because if, for example, in brain imaging, characteristically, you're looking for differences. That's how brain images are actually generated. Uh, they they take a baseline resting state or another task and subtract data from the task that you're interested in from that image. And the result that you get is, is actually a difference, and that's what you're looking at. So if you then go on to say, I believe that male brains are different from female brains, then that very much drives how you design the study, obviously, because you select two groups of people. And then when you get the data from them, looking for differences, I mean, your experiment is set up to find differences. I think the way in which 
you could look at it differently is to get away from the idea that there's two very simple categories, uh, male and female, and that those would be the basis of the comparison you could make. If instead you thought of somebody's biological sex as a contributory factor, but years in education, occupation, a whole range of other factors could also be taken into account, then you'd be interrogating the data in in a much more realistic way rather than assuming that you can just put everything in either a mailbox or a female box and comparing the two. I mean, the work that I've written about in neurosexism, in a way, shows very clearly how old ideas and old beliefs can actually drive the interpretation of findings. So there are examples of brain imaging studies where researchers have compared groups of males and females for perfectly valid reasons, but then interpreted their findings in terms of of what we could only really call stereotypes. So that if you find differences in connection, you know, connectivity pathways in the brain, if you find different forms of, of pathways in male brains as opposed to female brains, then researchers sometimes go on to interpret those in terms of old stereotypes. This could explain why men are better at visuospatial tasks than women. This could explain why women are um, um, more emotionally sensitive than men. But if you look at the emerging revisiting of all those kind of data, those so-called differences actually don't stand up to that kind of test. But it's also the case they weren't measuring those behaviors in the scanner. So mm. interpreting their brain imaging findings in terms of of those kind of stereotypical behaviors is, is a very classic example, I think, of, of how beliefs can guide the interpretation of research. <laughs> According to Gina, this kind of sexism goes beyond brain scanning research. I mean, I think this goes way back to research I was doing uh end of the last century. <laughs> Sounds awful. <laughs> um, things, um, issues associated with um, the menstrual cycle and the whole concept of premenstrual tension and it becoming something to which people could attribute problems so that subjectively women would report, yes, they definitely had problems at certain times of the month, etc. But when you actually, if you got them to keep a diary or took some objective measures, there was no indication of, of, of any um, menstrually related changes. But it was something that you believed was true and it was a useful hook to hang things on uh, if things started to go wrong. Uh, so, of course, it then became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. But it was certainly the case in the whole kind of raging hormones debate and the idea that women, you know, you shouldn't let women have positions of power because they might be in the wrong phase of the menstrual cycle when they were supposed to be pressing the button. But actually, if you looked at the data, I mean, there are instances of quite severe issues associated with very strong hormonal changes. But the kind of everyday image uh, was sustained for a long time. And and I think that's, in a way, it's also interesting that it's it's a belief that the, that the individuals concerned also had. So they were also contributing in terms of research findings. The fact that even scientific progress can be influenced by dogma and assumptions illustrates that beliefs are simply an integral part of what it means to be human. But, according to Gina, if we continue to have faith in the scientific method by challenging assumptions, science will continue to progress and flourish. 
So there we heard about scientists who, try as they might, can't help their beliefs and preconceptions influencing the questions that they're trying to answer in the lab. But how changeable are people's beliefs? Science fiction writers have been musing for decades about what the world would be like if governments routinely used mind control. Are we anywhere near using a machine to manipulate what people believe? Our society editor Gemma Ware got in touch with some scientists experimenting with just that. If Colin Holbrook's impression is anything to go by, undergoing transcranial magnetic stimulation sounds a bit like being cornered by an angry dinosaur. Um, there's a very loud noise. It sounds quite a bit like this. With each of these raptor-like sounds, Colin, a research scientist at the Center for Behavior, Evolution and Culture at the University of California, Los Angeles, explains that an electromagnetic field is being pointed at a certain part of the brain. With each of those sounds, there is a, a quick pulse, which is, which is causing this part of the brain to activate quite a bit. It's just like being at the gym. If you work a bicep too hard at a certain point, your arm won't lift anymore. And that's more or less what we're trying to achieve um, in the brain with these pulses. Transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, is a new technology that neuroscientists are testing in labs around the world. This technique is already approved as a way to help people with major depressive disorders. Other research is also ongoing about whether TMS could be used to treat a range of other neuropsychiatric diseases, such as obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia or post-traumatic stress disorder. What Colin and his team were trying to do was a bit different. The researchers included Casey Azuma at the University of York in the UK and Marco Iacoboni, whose lab they used at UCLA. They wanted to see whether targeting the brain with TMS could actually shift people's religious beliefs or even their views about immigrants. The aspect of belief we were interested in was um, not so much how does the brain maintain a belief. It wasn't, oh, you know, beliefs live here in this part of the brain. What we were interested in was shifts in belief and specifically context where you believe more fervently. Essentially, what we were looking for was a part of the brain that you could think of as like a belief muscle that would flex on demand um, to help you solve problems. In the past, studies have shown that a region of the brain called the posterior medial frontal cortex, let's call that the PMFC for short, is involved in problem solving. It's this bit of the brain that reacts when presented with something new or threatening. Colin and his team wanted to see what would happen if it was turned off for a little while. So into the breach stepped 38 people willing to take part in an experiment. They'd all been screened beforehand to make sure that they were neither fervently religious nor fervently atheist. And they were all American citizens. It must have been a pretty strange experiment to be a part of. First, the participant was hooked up to the TMS machine and subjected to around 40 seconds of that strange noise. It feels very odd. Um, there's some slight discomfort related to your scalp twitching primarily. There's an involuntary twitch of the, of the scalp as, as, um, as the current goes through. While everyone went through this bit, half of the participants didn't actually realise that they were going through a sham version of TMS. These guys were the control group. After that... Uh, the first thing that happens is the participants are asked to think about their own inevitable death and the decomposition of their body. They're instructed to write a few sentences. 
And this is something that's been used in quite a bit of prior research. It's called a mortality salience induction. But essentially all it means is, hey, you and everyone you know and love is going to die. Think about that for a moment and now picture your body decomposing and write us a few sentences about it. We wanted to provide a context of, of threat. We thought that people who had been forced uh, to contemplate their mortality, if only for a few minutes, would probably be motivated to uh, believe in a positive afterlife more strongly. But remember, half of the people in the experiment had received enough magnetic stimulation for that problem-solving part of their brain to be shut down, or what's called down-regulated. The effects last for about an hour. We thought if we turn off that part of the brain that we think is involved in these kinds of intensifications of belief, then the participants who had uh, the TMS administered won't believe more strongly. They will believe less strongly in God, heaven, and angels relative to people who were in our control condition. The participants were then asked to rate the extent to which they believed in several things. Three items which were about positive afterlife beliefs, specifically belief in God, angels, and heaven. And then three parallel items that were about negative afterlife beliefs, and these were about the devil, hell, and demons. The idea was to figure out what the burst of TMS had done to their belief in God when they had been reminded of the threat of their own mortality. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you for having me on the podcast and also to remind you that you will die, and so will everyone listening. And, and what do we do with that information? And I think people do a number of things. I don't want to paint a glib portrait. And I certainly don't think that religious beliefs exist only to reassure us or anything like that. But I do think one thing that if you do live in a culture that makes available reassuring religious ideas, not all cultures do, by the way, but if you live in a society such as ours, which has these things um, available, then it's certainly an option. And one way to reassure oneself or to sort of address the problem of death is to invest in religious beliefs that tell you it's actually not a problem. Um, that in fact, you just transition to an even nicer place than we are in now. So by turning off the bit of the brain that deals with problem solving, Colin and his team suggest that for about an hour, they had reduced the likelihood that people see God as the solution to the problem of death. So we, we thought, you know, having reminded people of death, the normal reaction would be to become a, a bit more fervent, or at least... <laughs> be more open-minded to the idea of heaven and so on. But that by using TMS in this way, we would shut that down so that people would not become more believing. And that, that is what we found. In fact, they found that people who had received the TMS reported 32.8% less belief in God, angels or heaven than the control group. And the pattern was, was striking in that we didn't see the same results with regards to belief in negative things like, the, you know, the devil and hell. But we did see a decrease in the extent to which people reached out to belief in God, heaven, and angels, which I think, again, speaks to the relevance of those beliefs to solving the problem of death, because hell's not a very good solution. Another part of the experiment had also tried to probe what would happen to people's beliefs about immigrants and their own sense of national identity. Each person in the study was presented with two essays, both ostensibly written by a Latin American immigrant to the US. But while one was a love letter about America... The other was a diatribe. It's quite spicy, uh, the, the critical essay. It says America is a cold, unsensitive country full of lazy, mean people who just want to take advantage of immigrants. 
that it's a bad place to live, that the person regrets coming. It's quite a it's quite a rant. The reason for reading these two essays was to find out what the magnetic stimulation would do to people's ideological convictions. Prior research shows that having been threatened tends to lead people to kind of circle the wagons and become a bit more nationalistic and a bit more biased in favour of their group. But Colin's team wanted to see whether this was still the case if the problem-solving bit of the brain had been temporarily shut down. And that is indeed what we found. So people who had had TMS actually rated the critical author quite a bit more positively than those in the control condition. In fact, those who had received the TMS were 28.5% more positive toward the immigrant who had written the critical rant about the US than the control group were. This is the opposite of what psychologists would expect to happen, because usually when somebody is exposed to something critical of their own country, they display an increase in what's called group bias. So we interpret what we see as just the absence of that increase, that because we turned off the part of the brain that would normally help put together that increase, people remain fairly open-minded about these criticisms. They didn't respond in an ideological way to the criticisms to the same extent as the control participants. So a short burst of magnetic stimulation to the brain had actually made some of the participants a bit more open-minded towards criticism of their own country by an immigrant. Colin is very honest about the limitations of the study. He admits that the team don't really know what they did. For example, they weren't able to do scans of the brain of their participants to actually see what was going on. And he doesn't know whether the results would be the same if people hadn't been asked to think about their own mortality first. He's heard that another team of researchers in Sweden are trying to replicate the experiment, and he's keen for others to do so too. He's also trying to get some more funding together to do more work in this area himself. Colin understands, however, why some people might be alarmed by what he's found. Well, I've gotten some really interesting email, I'll have to say, over the last year. He tries to reassure those who worry that this type of research into changing people's beliefs could lead into the territory of mind control found in science fiction by listing a few of the pragmatic details. So no one's going to sneak up behind you (laughs) in an alley and administer this uh, TMS procedure. This is something that has to be completely consensual. It's incredibly tricky to do. It requires about 10 to 15 minutes of careful and collaborative set up and then 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 the process itself is so extremely loud um there's just no covert way of um of doing this this is something that would only be done in a scientific lab with someone's complete buy-in and informed consent and it's very safe the the other thing i would say is that the effects only last uh about 45 minutes to an hour and i would also add that no one was taken from one category to another it wasn't as if we took atheists and made them religious or or took devoutly faithful people and made them atheists. That's that's not at all what we did. What we did was we took moderate believers or political moderates and shifted them a little bit for about an hour. So we, we showed an influence, but it wasn't really all that stark of an influence. This wasn't some kind of mind control. This was sort of a mind nudge. To find out more about whether we should actually be a bit worried about the future of this kind of research, we reached out to Nathan Emmerich, a visiting research fellow at Queen's University in Belfast who studies bioethics and topics of enhancement. 
He said it was key to look at what was actually going on in this experiment. So we wouldn't think that simply by reading about death or simply by reading this paragraph that we've changed people's beliefs. But what we've done is we've kind of slightly shifted the way in which those beliefs are expressed within a population of people. Nathan actually praises Colin and his team for not making bold claims that they've changed people's whole belief system. I think at present, things like TMS are not the most worrying neurointerventions. He's actually more worried about other kinds of mind alteration, particularly those involving hormones such as oxytocin, which recent research has found influences the way couples react to each other. One of the papers that I wrote was about the idea of love drugs and uh, using oxytocin or similar sorts of drugs to maintain one's monogamous relationships. The idea that we can use medicine or biomedicine as a kind of you know, scientific healthcare conglomerate to reinforce kind of social norms like monogamy seems to be quite dangerous, similar to the dangerous uses of psychiatry in the past. And putting TMS into historical context, it's not that unusual for scientists to experiment with ways of changing people's beliefs. I think at the advent of any kind of new technology, we get worried about these things, you know, subliminal messages in uh, rock and roll radio broadcasts or in uh, LPs, you know, was once a concern. You know, subliminal messages in films as a concern, of course, it's a valid concern insofar as you can put frames in films and influence people to buy more popcorn or ice cream whilst they're at the cinema. Uh, but of course, we've outlawed that and there would be severe consequences for anyone who tried to do that. For now, this kind of research involving transcranial magnetic stimulation is in its infancy. At the moment, it's a massive clunky magnet that uh, makes an incredibly large noise. That's probably not going to change anytime soon. Perhaps if we develop neurotechnologies that are hardware in design and can be plugged into ourselves in various ways, then um, maybe we should be more concerned. But even that seems to be largely speculative at the moment. Still, it's worth keeping an eye on, says Nathan. There's actually a lot of good that transcranial magnetic stimulation can do to help people with depression or perhaps even other diseases. And while it's not impossible to imagine a future in which electromagnetic fields can permanently change people's minds, that's still a long way off. And hopefully, the ethical alarm bells would have started ringing long before. That was our colleague Gemma Ware looking at just how far away scientists are from understanding the way belief works in the brain. Next up, we hear some more personal stories about how people's beliefs are affected by real-life experiences. In that last segment, we were vividly, albeit briefly, reminded of our own mortality. But for some, that brush with death is all too real, and it can haunt them long after the terrible event. If there's one thing that can shake someone's belief system, it's trauma. Trauma is like an earthquake, I think, is, is the best picture that you can use to, to describe it. So if you can imagine beliefs as like a, a beautiful landscape that's lovely and unspoiled and great, and then a, an experience of trauma kind of rolls through that like an earthquake. And what's left behind is this 
great devastation and nothing looks the way it looked before. That's Karen O'Donnell, a researcher at Durham University. She's published work on post-traumatic stress disorder in the military, and I spoke to her about the relationship between trauma and belief. She was quick to tell me that trauma affects a far broader range of people than just veterans of war. It also includes survivors of sexual assault and abuse, for example. As a result, defining trauma is tricky. In its most basic sense, a traumatic experience causes rupture. It ruptures identity, it ruptures sense of time, which is why you get loads of flashbacks, and it ruptures um, language and cognition, so you can't talk about um, the experience that you've had because it just doesn't make any sense to you. So really, when when you think about trauma and belief, what, what trauma does is it just pulls belief apart completely. Karen's research is mostly focused on Christianity. But she explained that trauma does not just shake religious beliefs. It fundamentally affects the way that people think about the world. I would say that no matter what your belief system, so whether you would say, I'm a Christian, or whether you would just say, I'm not really anything, and perhaps I don't feel like I have a concrete belief system, actually trauma has the same impact. Obviously, if you're a, if you're somebody that believes in an organised religion, then that impact is quite glaringly obvious. So, you know, you may once have believed that um, God was good, um, and you might find it very difficult to believe that, given the experience that you've had. But you don't necessarily need to have a, an organised belief system in order to have your beliefs ripped apart. In fact, having an organised belief system can in some cases be detrimental to recovery. What kind of research into trauma, or certainly my research into trauma, suggests that a rigid set of doctrines actually can be really harmful. So if you're told always, God works all things for the good, of those that love him, and then you experience miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage, how can you believe that to be true? And certainly my experience of working with women with reproductive loss is that that's one of the things that they would say, well, what, what, what does that mean then about my, my own faith? Am I not a good person? Does God not want good things for me? As well as studying this in her academic research, Karen has experienced trauma and wrestled with her own faith. She told me how her own experience of reproductive loss made it really difficult to believe in an all-loving God who has total control of her life. Like many of the people she's interviewed, she found that belief plays a crucial role in that all-important part of recovery, constructing a new way of seeing the world that makes sense of your trauma. My research has, has demonstrated, and it really surprised me, that actually the way in which spirituality can help, or faith or belief can help, in recovery is actually to give people a really wide space in which to reconstruct a new way of thinking about their faith. So if you've experienced a trauma, you can't necessarily just go back and hold on to the things that you always believe to be true because they've been proved not to be true, or at least they seem that way. And part of recovery from trauma, the, the most important part, is the construction of a narrative that actually makes sense of what you've experienced. Um, that narrative has to be personal. It has to be written by the person that's experienced the trauma. It can't just be imposed by the um, official beliefs of a, of a church. But the other part of that is that recovery is dependent on being part of a witnessing community who believes what you've said. So it's easy to see how dogma can undermine someone's ability to recover. There needs to be room for doubt, 
for questioning and reconstructing your belief system. As Karen explained to me, this is a crucial part of the three stages of recovery. The, the stages of trauma recovery, if you, if you really want to simplify them, there's there are three elements. So firstly, you need to be safe. You need to not still be in the place of trauma happening to you. Secondly, you have to construct this narrative that makes sense of trauma. And then thirdly, is a reconnection with society. And that that's kind of, I've said that like one, two, three, as if it's a linear process. In reality, it's like... Um, uh, dot to dot you know you're going all around the houses perhaps back to all of those it, you know three or four times in a different in an in an hour if not you know over the course of your period of recovery and and realistically people who've experienced PTSD will never fully recover um, but they'll find ways of functioning in a new way in a new belief system that allows them to move forward but the PTSD will always be with them it's not something that you can say oh one day I'm no longer suffering from trauma and the thing with trauma is, it's still a relatively new area of research. Karen's current research project involves drone pilots and their experience of PTSD. So you would think that drone pilots would have no instance of PTSD. They don't experience any trauma. You know, they're, they're piloting drones from the safety of somewhere in Bedfordshire. Not, they're not out in Afghanistan with the risk of being killed. And yet drone pilots are something like two thirds more likely to experience PTSD. I think it's something to do with a kind of context collapse that actually when you're out in the field, you, um, you're part of a community of, of a group of soldiers or a group of, of pilots who are all together and you've got a safe distance. Whereas if you're a drone pilot, you know, you can be blowing somebody up and then 30 minutes later, you can be walking through the door for dinner with your family. And there's something too close, I think, about those two worlds that doesn't give enough transition space to actually protect the, the body and the, and the embodied experience there. We'll have to wait and see to find out what Karen concludes when it comes to drone pilots' experience of trauma. What's clear from hers and others' research, though, is that the relationship between trauma and belief is complex. Trauma doesn't kill belief, or vice versa. But as with all our experiences, it shapes who we are and how we see the world. Thanks, Annabelle. Well, that's it for this episode of The Ant Hill on Beliefs. After 2016 full of surprises and shocks at the system, we'll be back soon with a look ahead to what 2017 has to offer. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. If you've enjoyed listening, please do review us on whichever platform you get your podcasts on. The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We're a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com. It's great. Or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye.